If life is a mystery, who done it? Welcome to Ye Gods, I'm Scott Carter. Today's program encores the very first Ye Gods. My guest on it is comedian, actor, and voiceover artist Paul F. Tompkins. Hearing it again just now, I found myself smiling at the improvisational give and take that can only happen between two old friends. What I love most about any time I get together with Paul and we have a conversation is that we can discuss the most serious of topics without either of us ever pulling a long face. So let me take you behind the scenes at Ye Gods for a bit. Before each interview, I will tell the guest that I won't ask them any question that I would not be willing to answer myself. And so, because I usually ask the same three questions at the end of each episode, I need to have answers ready in case they turn the tables on me. So far, this has not happened. But my favorite quote, which I often ask people for, seems particularly apt given this conversation with Paul F. Tompkins. And this quote comes from playwright and screenwriter Ben Hacht. He wrote a lot of movies for Alfred Hitchcock and Howard Hawks. And I first read this quote about 50 years ago in the introduction to the collected stories of Ben Hacht. And I typed it out and I put it on the wall in my office. And the quote is, People who sweat when they think, and to whom an idea comes with all the impact of a toothache, refuse to believe that gaiety and not pain may be the mark of intellect. Let me read it again. People who sweat when they think, and to whom an idea comes with all the impact of a toothache, refuse to believe that gaiety and not pain may be the mark of intellect. Amen, Ben. All that's solemn isn't wise. All that's wise isn't solemn. Wisdom often sings and laughs and even giggles. And now, please enjoy Paul F. Tompkins. She was laying in bed. She was thinking about the Iraq War. And she was trying to figure what reason God had for this war. Because she was raised to believe that there was a reason for everything. It's all part of God's plan. And then the more she thought about it, she thought, there is no plan of any kind and there is no God. There's nothing, there's nobody that's that's determining things, that's looking out for things. And she said, and this is a direct quote, she said, by the time I woke up, I realized it was all just shit. Which was a powerful... <laughs> Powerful thing to say for your for your elderly mother to tell you. My guest today is Paul F. Tompkins, whose humor has given me years of enjoyment, as has his friendship. You may know him from HBO's Mr. Show with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross as the host of Best Week Ever on VH1. Also, Know You Shut Up on Fusion TV or on a myriad of podcasts, including Spontanea Nation, Dead Authors, Pod F. Tompcast, Stay F. Homkins, which, he, which, which, which is a show with also his lovely wife, lovely and talented wife, Janie Haddad. And if you've never seen him live, consider your life wasted. His immense talent is it's, it's just apparently effortless, so as to inspire envy in any other performer who watches him. He is a mighty Wurlitzer organ of mirth. <laughs> so welcome, Paul, and I should tell listeners of Ye Gods that when I first met you, before your epiphany on the road to Damascus, you performed as Saul 
F. Tompkins, That's I correct. believe. That's yeah. correct. And the, so, my big hook was I had scales on my eyes. Yeah. And then the finale is they fall. That's that's right. And I be- I had to beg the audience, please don't tell people, don't don't reveal the ending of my routine. Now, Paul, one of the things I want to get to for this uh, program is to talk about mm-hmm. your upbringing in Philadelphia, where you were born and raised, and what kind of faith was in your house. Now, you were you were one of six, correct, children. One of six children. So a large Catholic family. Classic. Okay. A classic, okay, Catholic family. Mm -hmm. And how was the faith presented? How strictly was it observed? We went to church every Sunday. We all went to Catholic school. We said grace at meals, at dinner, I would say, not 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 lunch or breakfast. And there were there was there was religious iconography in the house. But by the time I got to high school, which was Catholic as well. I had friends who I realized were that the that the faith was way more infused into their daily life at home in a way that ours was not. I mean, we knew that we were that was our identity. We were Catholics and we were very much a part of our parish to the point where everyone I knew was Catholic. But it was not I I would not say that we were overly like obviously religious other than those things. Like we wouldn't say grace in public, let's say. Like if we went to a restaurant, we wouldn't say grace there. You know, the, but I had friends who were who were raised with a much more, you know, ever-present religious day-to-day. Did you and your siblings buy into this program, this package that was being presented to you? I mean, I did for sure. I would say that when I was a little kid, you're just in it, you know? And then I would say by the time I got to high school, obviously past the age of reason, I absolutely was a devout believer. I remember this probably was in eighth grade. I was in the choir at our church and it was a Good Friday mass. And the way this particular priest did this mass, it was very dramatic in that as Christ is deserted by by the disciples, they would turn out uh, some of the overhead lights in the church. Now, this is this was like an old church, like one of those arc type churches. You know, it was very very dramatic to look at, huge high ceilings and all of this. You know, there were marble statues, and then there was these eight, these huge wood carvings of angels overhead, and then these gigantic lights, like chandelier lights that were like that were like big capsules, you know, it was very, it was very dramatic. So as these lights went out, uh, these rows of lights went out one by one, it got darker and darker in the church. And I remember crying uh, at the idea of Christ's friends deserting him in his hour of need. Did you, as you got to high school, let's say, did you have friends who were completely cynical or were they testing your allegiance because they were getting to be more cynical? I No. The, the people that I hung around with were all the same as I were devout believers, even though we didn't, and again, we didn't like talk about religion all the time, but I just knew, you know? And because there were, there were people that were like that at my school, at my Catholic high school, that I... I didn't understand them. I looked down on them. I, I couldn't understand why you would be this way. And I I considered them fools for not um who, who are not the believing fools now? as I believed. 
The, what, the fools are Protestant? The fools who did not believe as I believed. I see. We were all in the same school, and yet they 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 flouted God's law. <laughs> <laughs> my in my neighborhood, there was one boy across the street who went to a Catholic school, and we felt sorry for him because he wasn't joining in the fun mm-hmm. of the public school that everyone else in the neighborhood went to. And I remember being very young and seeing nuns on the street and just being intimidated by them of of thinking of not thinking that they are friendly and welcoming but thinking that they are forbidding in mm-hmm. some way that they seemed humorless instinct scott <laughs> you spot on <laughs> so i was a stand up for a while and most comics who i would hear if they were catholic had 5 minutes on how terrible the nuns were the teachers were the, the 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 corporal punishment did you have any kind of those experiences in the school i some because i grew, i was going to school at a time when i was in grade school it was not long after vatican II, which is when the church said the catholic church said we're going to be more open and welcoming to to our our not subjects what's the word i'm looking for our, our parishioners members, our parishioners congregation and so the church was going to be in english it wasn't going to be in latin it was going to be more uh, human and this was uh, supposedly a a kinder gentler church and i think that's when they they shifted from you know the idea of you know if you if you sin it will make god angry and more, and they transition to if you sin, it will make God sad. And you know, the, the, they really polished up the guilt to a way that you wouldn't feel guilty for making God mad. But boy, oh boy, if you if you picture God crying because <laughs> because you <laughs> you stole a pack of gum. Now, now, were you were you a class clown? Were you funny oh, when you were a course. kid? And yes. and oh, okay. <laughs> and then were you? Were you never tempted to be giggling during uh, even, I know you're crying when the lights are going out in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the church, but did any of the, of the rituals ever make you laugh or want to laugh? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I was definitely not immune to that. And I remember being, my mother being furious. You know, I was laughing in church and, if, and you know, it's, it's the classic thing that once, once you start, you can't stop. And it's, uh, it's a terrible thing. And she, yeah, that would, that would happen occasionally for sure. And especially Especially when, you know, when the when the school would go to church, you know, we would have like a, a first Friday mass where the whole school would walk over to the church. That was when you could get in real trouble. Was being there with your classmates, and you know, you're you're filling the church and you're outnumbering the adults, and there was a lot of potential for trouble. When Pope John Paul II was shot, we had to quickly rush to the church and pray for him. Because what if we didn't? <laughs> what if, I mean, I I would love to know if I got to heaven to ask God how close was He to not surviving that? <laughs> Who needed to? What what church tipped the scales? It's kind but of that was it, also the first. That was the only time I ever fainted. Was no. that day? Was I remember the the feeling of everything kind of going to static in my field of vision, and then waking up to have uh, to having my tie loosened by a teacher. But it was kind of like a Tinkerbell. Mm-hmm. Ritual. One hundred percent. That Tinkerbell living depends yeah. upon the audience clapping. Yeah, and it, there's never been a production of Peter Pan where they say, "You know what? Not enough." Tinkerbell <laughs> stays dead, <laughs> which I Thanks. guess is how God views it. Is like, ah, oh, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, crappy audience. <laughs> <laughs>
I would love to attend a production where no one claps. <laughs> I would, or or some eccentric billionaire buys out an yeah. entire house, absolutely, of Peter Pan mm-hmm. just for that moment to enforce a silence mm-hmm. that is deafening to see how the actors on stage and they and they've been a great audience up until that point, mm-hmm. and but now they it's been be si- They've been paid. They, they they've been paid. <laughs> They are being paid, and and then it's silence and see how the actors are going to respond to it. Now, okay, now at some point you begin to move away from from accepting all of this, but you're in a family where I'm assuming not everyone's moving away from it at the same time, and I would think that some people have never moved away from it. Very true. I when I moved away from home is when I started moving away from my faith, and it was a it was a gradual it was a very gradual pulling away. Like I like I, I wasn't aware that it was happening necessarily. I, I will say that as soon as I got away from home, I stopped going to church because that was something that I, I as as much as as deep as my faith ever was, I never liked going to church on Sundays. The only the only mass I ever liked was uh midnight mass on Christmas Eve. So I still but I still considered myself a Catholic and I still considered my my values to be Catholic values. Part of this is I was I had a fear of of anything else. And so when I'm out in the world and now I'm there's the possibility that I might have sex for the first time. You know, I'm not no one, no one is, there's no one around that is, that is making me think this is a bad idea. And so, but it was terrifying because I, I, there was very little sex education and it had been demonized so much to have sex outside of marriage and that it was, it was, you know, you're, you're wasting this precious thing. It makes God sad and so on and so forth. And I subtly transitioned from it being faith-based to completely being fear-based. So that I eventually was like, oh, I, I'm just scared to do these things. <laughs> now, um, so you've, you've moved away from home. Mm-hmm. When you go back for the first time and everyone's there, let's say at Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. are you letting some of them, are you letting some of your siblings know that you're you're moving away from the faith? No, it's not something, especially with my brothers and sisters, we never talked about it. The only person that was keeping track of it was my mother. She still went to mass every Sunday, and so did my father. My father was very quiet, and he never—I can't imagine him getting into a discussion of that. And and later, after my mother stopped going to mass, like two weeks after she stopped going, then he stopped going. (laughs) And I don't know—I don't know what that calculation was in his mind. (laughs) Um, How did you and your siblings react when your mother stopped going to church? Oh, we were shocked. I mean, the only one going to church at that point was was my sister Sarah, who is who remains uh, very religious, and I think you know has doubled down on the Catholicism in in recent years. And I think she goes to mass multiple times a week, and you know has has retained the faith in a way that none of us even come close to. So when my mother stopped going to church, we were everyone was blown away. Like her, it was a very, it was a very quick decision on her part. It, it was a, after a night of reflection, this was back when the Iraq war was maybe, I don't know, it was a few years in George W. Bush was still president and she, there were a few of us at the house 
and she said, oh, I, I want to tell you something. I've decided that I'm an atheist now. And we were, you know, of course, taken aback and, and said, what, how did you, how did you arrive at this? And she said she was thinking about, she was laying in bed. She was thinking about the Iraq war and she was trying to figure what reason God had for this war because she was raised to believe that there was a reason for everything. It's all part of God's plan. And so she was trying to come up with what could the reason be? And the more she thought about it, the more it just unraveled. And she thought, maybe God doesn't have a plan for everything. And then the more she thought about it, she thought, there is no plan of any kind and there is no God. There's nothing, there's nobody that's that's determining things, that's looking out for things. And she said, and this is a direct quote, she said, by the time I woke up, I realized it was all just shit, which was a powerful, <laughs> powerful thing to say for your for your elderly mother to tell you. So how many people are there when she's making this announcement? Is everyone there? Is that at a holiday? No, it was not at a holiday. It was it was just like a I don't think I was even living at home at the time. It was just it was just like a Wednesday or whatever, you know? And I think there were three of us there. Did anyone try to talk her out of of this? Nobody's going to talk my mother out of anything anyway, so it doesn't if it doesn't matter what what the subject is. And, and, um, and I don't so know what, if my, what my one sister or what 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 questions did people have for her or had anybody been seeing had anybody seen this coming? No, even my mother didn't see it coming. And nobody, I mean I don't remember anybody asking any questions because as as was my mother's style she laid it all out for you she told you everything that you needed to know so you know this was a very neat and succinct story and yeah i don't recall anybody saying you know do you think that this is temporary do you think you'll go back to church you know do you still have any lingering you know doubts about your doubts i i, I think that was as far as i can remember that was it you know and then we all talked about it amongst ourselves and you know, we all found it. We all found it pretty, not just surprising, but also very amusing, given who she was and the way she had lived her entire life. Did she get blowback from, let's say, I don't know if she had siblings or other family, outer other relatives? Did she? I think that she had friends who maybe, in whatever private conversations, must have discussed it. But she, I was not privy to that, and she didn't share that. I do remember that when she was dying, when she was in hospice care. Her best friend tried to, she asked if she wanted a priest to come in and give last rites. And she just said, no. <laughs> she said, she said, no, like it was the most absurd thing in the world. <sighs> it was, that, uh, it was yeah. literally overnight. It was how, literally how overnight. Did, how long did she, how much longer did she live after she made this decision? A few years. And she, and she never wavered. Never wavered. And did she never take down wavered. the iconography in the house? Oh, I don't think so. We had we had like a few, there was like a Prince of Peace statue, and I think there was a Mary somewhere, and I think they just stayed where they were because they'd always been there. <laughs> and and what about the next Christmas? Where where you would might did you ever have a, a manger and the the donkeys no, and by, the, and the by wise point, men and yeah. By that point, because we were all out of the house, she didn't really decorate for Christmas anymore. There was like one one of those ceramic Christmas trees that has the 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 fake bulbs on it, so you put a light in and then it shines from from within. That was kind of it, you know. 
What about when she died? Was there a priest at her funeral? What kind of funeral service did she have? She had no service. She had a viewing for the immediate family. And then she was buried. And, you know, we went to the cemetery and she was put in the ground. And then we went back to the house. You know, that was it. Even during times where I have had no belief myself... There have been times where I went to, let's say, someone, the funeral service of somebody, the memorial service, or I went to a wedding, and I would have the sense that even though I don't share their belief, in a way, I envy it. And Mm -hmm. in a way, I envy that they are part of an entire spiritual infrastructure Mm-hmm. That is somehow helping to guide their life in the same way that if you live in a city with a subway system, it right. makes getting around a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. And and that I didn't have it, so I was in a, a big community with no buses or or subways, <laughs> and I'm having to walk everywhere. And I know that my life is more arduous because of it. <laughs> did you did you ever have that sense later on? Let's say. When you became a comedian or when you would sing in public and, and you're and you're expressing yourself as an artist, did did the artistry take over for for and 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 sort of channel the energy that perhaps had gone into the religion before that? Uh, that's tough to say because there was a lot of fear that was connected with my faith. There was the fear that I was that I was always doing something wrong. I was always messing up. There was just the fear that whatever I was doing, it wasn't enough. And once that went away, there was something that was very freeing about that. But then I was just left with the idea that, and something that took me a long time to understand, that I had a lot of fear. I was a fear-based person. And I'm not going to say I got that from religion. I think I just got that from, I think the way anybody gets it, from my from my upbringing, from you know whatever emotional scars and so on and so forth. And so my my faith kind of went into, if, if anything, I would say around that time, it, it went into as much belief in myself as I could muster, which is, I think that's how I was able to get into comedy. I think that's how I was able to stay in comedy because there is a certain amount of, when you first start out, you have to believe in yourself so much, so much more than you do later on. Because otherwise you would stop doing it. You would like the first the first rejection, the first time it doesn't go well, you would say, I guess I'm not good at this. Goodbye. You know? And so I think I think I had to, and and of course this is all this is all subconscious, but that faith went into me as much as it as much as I could possibly make it do that. So I could just kind of be a a young man who is trying desperately to figure out life as I move downtown to Philadelphia and start this comedy career, drop out of college. Like there's a thing in you that can't help but do it. And that's why you do it. You know, like, like you, I couldn't help but get on stage because there was, there was, my body was crying out for it. And when I dropped out of school as, as much as it was a, uh, a sort of slow slide where I, I just stopped going to more and more classes and then eventually had to admit to my parents, like I, I'm, I'm not going to school anymore. You know, I've, I found what I want to do and I want to, you know, work on that. That was a terrifying thing, but I had to do it, you know, and it was, that was, that was, things like that were big growing up moments where I realized, you know, I had the, the moral compass that I had learned as a child 
that told me I owe it to my parents to tell them that I've dropped out of school. I owe it to my parents to tell them this is what I want to do with my life, knowing they're not going to like it, but that it was the truth. And it's it's what was happening. I, I couldn't, I I could very easily have just drifted away, but I didn't I didn't want to do that. And I also wanted everything to be okay, even though I had no control over that. But I at least wanted it to be, if it was going to be bad, at least it wasn't going to be me making it bad by being deceitful or whatever, or being deceitful to them or to myself. What strikes me whenever I see you perform is the total permission that you've given yourself to be exploring joy and then creating it for others. And I was raised in a, in a household or an environment whereby there was a distrust of joy. <laughs> that one of, one of my grandfather, my grandparents' slogans was, sing before breakfast, cry before supper. That there is that there is a sense that that the world is looking out for the hubris of you having a good time. Good lord! And you are by laughing in the morning or singing in the morning, you you are just inviting this 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 god of of eternal balance of mm -hmm. of moods to therefore be taking you down before nightfall. Man, oh man! I mean, I had the same thing as as you did in that. I just kind of stopped going to classes over a period of time. Also, I don't know why I thought this would reassure my parents, but I told them I was a philosophy major. But as time went on, I took more classes from the drama department and fewer philosophy courses besides whatever requirements that I had to take. But I just spent more time. It was like I was playing hooky with my future. And, and I even thought during this time, I'm going to have to pay for this later. Right. And so eventually I did drop out because I was offered a job as a as a critic for a newspaper and so it, it kind of it kind of made sense. I'll go back I'll go back to college later well I never did. But but there was also this sense I kept in my mind from every movie that I saw as a child, every one in which there is a descent into hell of the protagonist <laughs> that a series of of mistaken choices then have this this life of ending in a lonely hotel room with a, with a bottle as <laughs> one's right. only friend, something like that, <laughs> unless I hit the lottery and became world famous. Right. And, and then everything would be excused, but no middle ground would be excused. Mm -hmm. You were talking about this inside yourself crying out. You still had that take that leap of faith. When I started doing comedy in Los Angeles, I, I was so scared of doing it that I made myself all these different promises for incremental progress. So the improv at the time on Melrose had a audition on Sunday nights. My first week, I just drove my car to the improv Melrose right. and yes. drove away. Right. The next one, I had to park the car, get out, touch the front door. And it was the fourth week when I signed up. Mm -hmm. The very first time I performed was just get one laugh. Right. If you get one laugh, you can come back to the next week. And and so I got a laugh on the very first line. I remember <laughs> immediately the, the walked name. off stage. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I, I kept going. And then, but then was it was more reinforcing. There was a comedian who's the 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 MC. I will never forget a man named Kenny Aubrey wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Who then I when I got done, I came out and I was walking off to my car. He ran down the sidewalk to say, "Your writing is six months." 
ahead of your performing. You just have to be patient. Later on, when I became an MC, mostly at the comic strip in New York, I would try and do that to everybody. Just a couple of years ago, uh, Adam Sandler came up to me at a party of Kevin Nealon's and he came up to me and said, I have never said thank you, but you were the MC the first time I performed at the comic strip. You came out to me at the bar and you gave me all this encouragement. You don't know how much that meant to me. Wow. So the questions of why we're here and, and if, for instance, you're at your mother's funeral and it's and there's no priest or anybody there. There are no masses of grieving friends of hers from 40, 50, 60 years who were there. And it's just, it's over. How has that informed your notion of faith? As you go through life, if you have a desire to be a person that you can yourself be proud of, m- much less make somebody else proud of, but if you can say, I am trying always, endeavoring always, and always falling short, but but getting uh, a little closer each time to be a person that if I met that person, I would say he's a good guy. And I think that that you get closer to it if that's your goal. I think you get closer to it as you go on. And I think a lot of it you learn from those people in your life that are like that. Everybody today, I think, is making up their own um, smorgasbord of parts of belief that come out of maybe some parts of tradition, maybe some parts out of some novel that impressed them, out of some movie they saw, some song, and they're putting it all together, and that's their code. Mm -hmm. And the basics of, of the morality that I was taught in school are the basics of morality for the world. I think, you know, it's, it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But even that, I always bristle at that a little bit because it feels so conditional. It's like, you're not, you're not supposed to do it just because that's how you would like to be treated. It's because that's the decent way to be. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not supposed to be doing things like that to be, to be kind to people because you're trying to score some karma points and then someone will be kind to you. It's because someone has already been kind to you and you know what that feels like. The You mentioned the golden rule, do unto others. And in the last few years, I have begun to completely reject it because- yeah. It, what it assumes is that everyone shares the same notion of what the good is. <laughs> so, for in, so for instance, I know people who are incredibly social and gregarious and love to speak in front of people and love to delight and perform. And I know other people for whom that is a horror to the, the thought that they would have to account for themselves to uh, the public, a group of strangers or even a group of friends. And and so I've I've completely gone the other way on that one. Do you think that when you die, that there will be some sort of reckoning, some sort of judgment over how you have lived this existence? I don't. I, I truly don't. I I feel that, you know, when you're when you're done, you're done. I, I there's a lot that I don't know about how the universe works, and I could absolutely be wrong. That's just what I'm assuming. That's just what I assume happens. I think the reckoning <laughs> the reckoning is essentially the same for everyone. But also the time that you have on earth, who knows how long you get? 
you don't know. Some, you know, some people live to be over a hundred years old and then some babies die in the crib and you have no idea. You have no idea where you fall in between those things. And I think the reckoning for all of us is our own judgment at the end of our lives of who we have been and, and how we have treated other people. And are we going to leave behind lives that we have touched in a meaningful way? I think if you're really living your life in a way that is full of joy and and full of full of sorrow you got to feel that stuff too. I think that at the end of it all you will say I lived the life that I lived. I did I did what I could and you know I I got as much time as I was allowed. One of the things that I'm working on a project about Shakespeare one of the things that keeps interesting me about him is at the time he died, about half the plays had been published. Mm-hmm. And it was just because two guys who had been actors in his company decided seven years after he died, he dies in 1616. And in 1623, they go back and track down Macbeth and they track down Midsummer Night's Dream, whatever hadn't been published. And so we would have no knowledge today of any of those works. They would have been lost to the ages. Now, in the meantime, Shakespeare's dead. He's had his life, whatever that impact is. Or there are people, let's say, like Van Gogh, unappreciated in their own lifetime, appreciated later. Right. We we kind of can't control that. What we can try to control is what we put out be true to the extent of generosity without thought of what might come back to me. Paul, it, it is a always a delight to talk to you. Let me let me just say as we as we conclude that whenever I have been to a performance of yours, there is such a gift that you are giving everyone in the audience and you're backstage afterwards so you can't see it, but as the, the house lights come up and people rise from their seats and they're walking away, there is a a transformation in their outlook in life that has occurred, who knows how long it will last, but you know that it's there at that moment. And instances like that, I've very often thought, well, wait a minute, isn't this what a church service is supposed to be for people? Isn't it supposed to have this kind of cathartic release and this sense of elevation? An entire group of strangers, very filled with gratitude. And maybe they treat everybody else a little bit nicer when they leave. And that is an undeniably good thing. Well, that's very, very generous of you to tell me that. And I I appreciate it very much. (laughs) All right, Paul, take care. Thank you. You too, Scott. Thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to talk to Paul of Tompkins. Every Christmas for many, many years now, he and I will have a dinner at the Tam O'Shanter in Atwater Village in Los Angeles, one of the great historic restaurants. And we'll always try to get the Disney table because this is where Walt Disney used to come with his family every Sunday afternoon. And they would sit at the same table And he, or somebody else very much like him, carved um, in this wooden table uh, some of his animated characters. And uh, we got the Disney table last Christmas. And while we're eating, tourists came over because they'd heard about it. And so we're eating and trying to have a conversation. And they want to gawk at the tabletop. Paul and I talk with each other two hours, two and a half hours. It always seems like I could go on forever with him. So I'm very grateful that he was on the show this week. I end each show with a semi-sermonette I call In My Homily Opinion. I hope that it will spark in you 
a response that you will then email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. And maybe I will reply to you on the next episode and we will have started a dialogue. This first Ye Gods debuts on Ash Wednesday when Christians observe two rituals. The first one, fasting, seems to be optional. Uh, but the more famous one is you go to the church and a priest smears a cross of ash on your forehead to remind you that no matter how healthy you are, no matter how old you are, at some point you will just be a pile of ashes. Today I'm thinking about Paul Tompkins' mom, who was a good woman, who had a deep belief in God, as interpreted by her church, the church in which her parents had raised her, the church in which she'd raised her six kids, the church in which she probably figured that her all of her grandkids were going to be raised. But at some point during the Iraq war, she prays to God for an answer as to why are we fighting? How could God, who says don't kill, bless this conflict for which this woman could find no good cause? This was a conscientious question, earnestly asked, and for which no satisfying answer came to her. So then she thinks maybe what she'd been teaching her kids all these years was false, and then her religion evaporated. A circle, once unbroken, was broken. A once faithful little lamb fled the flock. Once that seed of doubt was lodged in her mind, no parish priest could counterpoint her doubt. No ritual returned her to the fold. And since she's now passed on, I ask myself, if there is a God, who does God side with? A woman asking questions in good faith? Or his church in which she'd stopped believing? I think religion today often fails many who come to it with broken hearts and just do not get healed. Exploring that unanswered need is what the Ye Gods podcast was created for. So you can send me your thoughts via prayer, but it's probably going to be more reliable if you email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.